Book One, Chapter Ten of the Branding Iron by Catherine Newland Burt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Chapter Ten. Prosper comes to a decision. Perhaps, in spite of his gruesome boast as to dead men, it was as much to satisfy his own spirit as to comfort Jones that Prosper actually did undertake a journey to the cabin that had belonged to Pierre. It was true that Prosper had never been able to stop thinking, not so much of the tall, slim youth lying so still across the floor, all his beauty and strength turned to an ashen slackness, as of a brown hand that stirred. The motion of those fingers groping for life had continually disturbed him. The man, to Prosper's mind, was an insensate brute, deserving of death, even of torment, most deserving of Joan's desertion. Nevertheless, it was not easy to harden his nerves against the picture of a man left, wounded and helpless, to die slowly alone. Prosper went back expecting to find a dead man, went back as a murderer visits the scene of his crime. He dubbed himself more judge than murderer, but there was a restless misery of the imagination not to be quieted by names. He went back stealthily at dusk, choosing a dusk of wind-driven snow so that his tracks vanished as soon as made. It was very desolate, the blank surface of the world with its flying scud, the blank yellow-gray sky, the range all iron and white the blue-black scars of leafless trees, the green-black etching of firs. The wind cut across like a scythe, sharp but making no stir above the drift. It was all dead and dark, an underground world which, Prosper felt, never could have seen the sun, had no memory of sun nor moon nor stars. The roof of Pierre's cabin made a dark ridge above the snow, veiled in cloudy drift. He reached it with a cold heart and slid down to its window, cautiously bending his face near to the pane. He expected an interior already dark from the snow piled around the window, so he cupped his hands about his eyes. At once he let himself drop out of sight below the sill there was a living presence in the house. Prosper had seen a bright fire, the smoke of which had been hidden by the snow spray. A cot was drawn up before the fire, and a big, fair young man in tweeds, whose face, rosy, sensitive, and quiet, was bent over the figure on the cot. A pair of large white hands were carefully busy. Prosper, crouched below the window, considered what he had seen. It was a week now since he had left Landis for a dying man. This big fellow in tweeds must have come soon after the shooting. Evidently he was not caring for a dead man. The black head on the pillow had moved. Now there came the sound of speech, just a bass murmur. This time the black head turned itself slightly and Prosper saw Pierre's face. He had seen it only twice before, once when it had looked up, fierce and crazed, at his first entrance into the house, 
once again when it lay with lifted chin and pale lips on the floor. But even after so scarce a memory, Prosper was startled by the change. Before it had been the face of a man beside himself with drink and the lust of animal power and cruelty. Now it was the wistful face of Pierre, drawn into a tragic mask like Joan's when she came to herself a miserably haunted and harrowed face, hopeless as though it too, like the outside world, had lost or had never had a memory of sun. Evidently he submitted to the dressing of his wound, but with a shamed and pitiful look. Prosper's whole impression of the man was changed, and with the change there began something like a struggle, he was afflicted by a crossing of purposes and a stumbling of intention. He did not care to risk a second look. He crept away and fled into the windy dusk. He traveled with the wind like a blown rag, and, stopping only for a few hours' rest at the ranger station, made the journey home by morning of the second day. And on the journey he definitely made up his mind concerning Joan. Prosper Gale was a man of deliberate, though passionate, imagination. He did not often act upon impulse, though his actions were often those attempted only by passion-driven or impulsive folk. Prosper could never plead thoughtlessness. He justified carefully his every action to himself. Those were cold, dark hours of deliberation as he let the wind drive him across the desolate land. When the wind dropped and a splendid still dawn swept up into the clean sky, he was at peace with his own mind and climbed up the mountain trail with a half-smile on his face. In the dawn, awake on her pillows, Joan was listening for him, and at the sound of his webs she sat up, pale to her lips. She did not know what she feared, but she was filled with dread. The restful stupor that had followed her storm of grief had spent itself, and she was suffering again. Waves of longing for Pierre, of hatred for him, alternately submerged her. All these bleak, gray hours of wind during which Wen Ho had pattered in and out with meals, with wood for her stove, with little questions as to her comfort, she had suffered as people suffer in a dream, a restless misery like the misery of the pine branches that leaped up and down before her window. The stillness of the dawn, with its sound of nearing steps, gave her a sickness of heart and brain, so that when Prosper came softly in at her door, she saw him through a mist. He moved quickly to her side, knelt by her, took her hands. His touch at all times had a tingling charge of vitality and will. "'He has been cared for, Joan,' said Prosper. "'Some friend of his came and did all that was left to be done.' "'Some friend?' In the pale, delicately expanding light, Joan's face gleamed between its black coils of hair with eyes like enchanted tarns. In fact, they had been haunted during his absence by images to shake her soul. Prosper could see in them reflections of those terrors, 
that had been tormenting her. His touch pressed reassurance upon her, his eyes, his voice. "'My poor child, my dear, I'm glad I am back to take care of you. Cry, let me comfort you. He has been cared for. He is not lying there alone. He is dead. Let's forgive him, Joan.' He shook her hands a little, urgently, and a most painful memory of Pierre's beseeching grasp came upon Joan. She wrenched away and fell back, quivering, but she did not cry, only asked in her most moving voice, "'Who took care of Pierre after I went away and left him dead?' Prosper got to his feet and stood with his arms folded, looking wearily down at her. His mouth had fallen into rather cynical lines, and there were puckers at the corners of his eyes. "'Oh, a big fair young man, a rosy boy face, serious-looking, blue eyes.' Joan was startled and turned round. "'It was Mr. Hollowell,' she said in a wondering tone. "'Did you talk with him? Did you tell him?' "'No, hardly.' Prosper shook his head. I found out what he had done for your Pierre without asking unnecessary questions. I saw him, but he did not see me. "'He'll be coming to get me,' said Joan. It was an entirely unemotional statement of certainty. Prosper pressed his lips into a line and narrowed his eyes upon her. "'Oh, he will?' "'Yes, he'll be taken after me. "'He must have been scared by something Pierre said in the town during their quarrel "'and have come up after him to look out what Pierre would be doing to me. "'I wished he'd a come in time. "'What must he be thinking of me now, to find Pierre a-lyin' there dead, and me gone? "'He'll be taken after me to bring me home.' Prosper would almost have questioned her then, his sharp face was certainly at that moment the face of an inquisitor, a set of keen and delicate instruments ready for probing. But so weary and childlike did she look, so weary and childlike was her speech, that he forbore. What did it matter, after all, what there was in her past? She had done what she had done, been what she had been. If the fellow had branded her for sin, why, she had suffered overmuch. Prosper admitted that, unbranded as to skin, he was scarcely fit to put his dirty civilized soul under her clean and savage foot. Was the big, rosy chap her lover? She had spoken of a quarrel between him and Pierre, but her manner of speaking of him was scarcely in keeping with the thought. Rather, it was the manner of a child soul relying on the shepherd who would be taken after some small lost one. Well, he would have to be a superman to find her here with no trails to follow and no fingers to point. Pierre by now would have told his story, and Prosper knew instinctively that he would tell it straight. Whatever madness the young savage might perpetrate under the influence of drink and jealousy, he would hardly, with that harrowed face, be apt at fabrications. They would be looking for Joan to come back, 
to go to the town, to some neighboring ranch. They would make a search, but winter would be against them with its teeth bared. A blizzard was on its way. By the time they found her, thought Prosper, and he quoted one of Joan's quaint phrases to himself, smiling with radiance as he did so, she won't be caring to leave me. In his gray, little, firelit room he sat, stretched out, lank and long, in the low, deep, red-lacquered chair, dozing through the long day, sipping strong coffee, smoking, reading. He was singularly quiet and content. The devil of disappointment and of thwarted desire that had wived him in his carefully appointed hiding place stood away a little from him and that wizard imagination of his began to weave. By dusk he was writing furiously, and there was a glow of rapture on his face. End of Book One, Chapter Ten Recording by Roger Moline